Last chance for spooky hits in honor of the last pre-election weekend that's also Halloween. What is your favorite movie monster? I'm Katie Rich, and I don't know if Stitch from Lilo and Stitch counts because he's an alien and he's cute and cuddly, but we've been watching Lilo and Stitch a lot, and I like him, so I'm picking him. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with, uh, this is not my favorite movie monster, but it's one I could think of, Bong Joon-ho's host monster. What do we call that thing? The host? We call it capitalism. Oh, wow. <laughs> really hit me in the gut there. Hey, it's me, Dave the Seven, and Jordan Hoffman reminded me last week that it is the xenomorph Jeffrey from Tubin. Alien. Oh. Yep. The, well, he's got a Jeffrey Tubin for a mouth. Yeah, I step away for one week, and suddenly you just have Jordan Hoffman talking about masturbation for 10 minutes. I'm so sorry Here to all go. of our listeners. First I'm back. two minutes. Uh, no, my name is David Ehrlich, and I am going to go with the baby xenomorph, the face hugger. In honor of Facey Witter, the face hugger toy with a big smiling face that Amy Nicholson sent me for Asa and that he has been really loving playing with the last couple of weeks. Facey Witter is in named after Pacey from Dawson's No, Creek. Facey Witter is just a complete coincidence that happened to match. Yes, named after Dawson's Creek. <laughs> I don't know Dawson's Creek well enough to know if that's Pacey's last name. Yes, what do you think I am? Uh, an American? Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 323, pandemic 33, election T minus one week. It's the week of Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. That's the day that in 2001, Donnie Darko was released. I have still never seen it. I don't know why. Really. Mad World. Remember uh, four, four years World. ago where we were thinking about uh, bringing review episodes back when President Hillary Clinton was elected? I don't remember ever Jesus making that promise. Christ. That was your idea. Well, either so thanks way, thanks for jinxing it, Dave. I mean, it didn't. It was it's fine. It didn't didn't work out. Just, we used to have entirely separate episodes that were review episodes. The election forever yeah. changed to podcast. Well, uh-huh. having kids and really, kids really the election of children sunk it. The election of children say. into our houses. Uh, so David, welcome back. Yeah, have you happy happy birthday? Ah, uh, boy, uh, what a happy How birthday old are it was. You now? I am, it's none of your goddamn business how old I am, <laughs> Mr. Patches. Old. Do you want to tell anybody how you spent your birthday? Yeah. I don't really know. I, uh, oh, it was very exciting. Uh, what parts of it that I can reveal in public anyway. I spent mm. my birthday walking my son. Did you go to a super son. spreader event? I went to a super spreader <laughs> I became my own super spreader event. I, I walked my son to daycare and then I came back and I watched the haunting of Bly Manor on my couch, and I think I read, and I probably did some work, even though I wasn't supposed to. And then Asa and Elisa and I went to the park, and we played in the swings, and we got a delicious dinner from my brother and my sister-in-law, who ordered it via London over uh, apps because technology. Via London, via London, not via London from London. Well, yeah. via well, I mean via London, not via a service called London. No, this via London, as in. You flew it in from London. No, I mean, I suppose like they, they are in London and in order to 
that I assume the signal they, they sent up had to go through a satellite at some point. It originated in London. Oh. Uh, they, they hopped on the they coast. They ordered or seamless whatever. Yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and it was a, it was truly a, a wonderful. Like, what did they get you? Beef Wellington, day. frozen. <laughs> yes, uh, fish and chips. Send me some blood sausage. They sent me haggis, not from London, mm. but from the area. Um, uh, no, it was a delightful day, and the best part of it was not talking to any of you people. But then mm-hmm. I listened now to I listened to the episode and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I thought, even though Jordan Hoffman betrayed our extensive pre-podcast conversations about the abject awfulness of the trial of the Chicago 7 by ultimately softening up on it, uh, I thought that he was an excellent guest for that segment. Um, and uh, yeah, lovely uh, podcast episode. I listened to that review you guys read. That was mostly Austin Powers and my jaw was... Slack from uh, people not picking up on what that reference was. It's again, Katie. We'll Katie grew up without a TV, so uh, without no, the I WB. Had it from the beginning. Wait, I had it. I watched Austin Powers a lot. I had Blockbuster, my friend. Mm. Um, uh, that's why anyway. Katie's always like shagalicious. <laughs> True. Right. I love Sh- you want- gold. Um, do you want to see what the reviewers have left for you since they missed the chance to hear you be Dr. Evil? I do. Uh, we have we have a review that we're going to read tonight from Penguin Tom, who says, Someone please explain the lightning round. I'm renewing my previous five-star review to pose an important question. I've been actively listening to this podcast for about six years, but have never in all that time managed to figure out how <laughs> listeners are intended to engage with the lightning round question posed at the start of each episode. I will say, Penguin Tom, that... Uh, I think at this point you're probably only listening in the hopes that you may one day solve that mystery. So for us to go any further Mm. could uh, sever this bond between us, which I think we all find sacred, (laughs) but um, I'm going to continue reading your review anyway. Having made my way through the back catalog posted by Dave Seven last year, I now understand how it used to work during the days when you put out two episodes per week. We were just talking about this. You posed the question during show one, and then you read out your favorite responses during show two. But I can't recall a single instance since you switched over to single episode a week in which you've actually gone back to the previous episode's lightning round question to read out a listener response. Is this just a running gag that I'm not fully able to appreciate? (laughs) A hilarious comic jape. Uh, Are there rich, informative lightning round discussions happening on Facebook? Uh, Alas. (laughs) Or some other trash platform that I don't engage with please tell me am i missing something here penguin tom i actually have to say you are the opposite of missing something you are incredibly on the ball as to what has happened here. <laughs> that's not what happened that's not true i mean people respond on twitter the okay, other thing okay. about our the other thing about once in a while people respond but but for the most part penguin tom has uh correctly well, caught it doesn't look at our twitter feed but other, i mean excuse me our twitter i may not tweet about the podcast but the fighting in the war room responses are filtered directly into my tweet deck so i do see that, that. that's yeah. that's true david does Same favorite here. any tweet that is like dragging my ass uh, I I that. <laughs> um, um, but uh we that is exactly what happens at this point i would say that we just do the lightning round questions for us however if you uh, it may not be in a timely fashion because we are all answering the questions as soon as we, a- we as soon as we ask them on the podcast now. But you are welcome to chime in with your own answers. Tweeted us right into our iTunes. Send us a yeah, uh, Facebook message. That above. just answers every lightning round question. Whatever you want to do, um, <laughs> uh, we are we are here for you. <laughs> uh, Look, I, I know people we are here for, we you. Here for I know you. people are busy, but um, there might be a little code. Dropped in the lightning round question. <laughs> Take the first letter of every lightning round question answer we've ever done. The it storm might spell is coming, out a popular folks. novel. 
I'm not going to tell you it, what it, it is. Which is I, because everyone is in honor of blank. So it's just no, the I answer to the lightning round. Oh, the answer. No, we're, we have a, a counter narrative to the QAnon going on and the answers That's to right. our. That would be so <laughs> great if we could get a cult going on around this. It would really help us climb up the charts and maybe mm-hmm, get some ads. Mm-hmm. Add, uh, who's going to pay the who's gonna pay day. legal fees, though, when you wind up in court in five or six years? Uh, I will represent. I will represent us. Everyone's always complaining about how expensive legal fees are. And it's just like, just represent yourself. It's going to go great. Definitely not a problem in American jurisprudence. Exactly. One Aaron Sorkin movie. Look how well it worked for uh, for Bobby Smith. Maybe load up some episodes of The West Wing on your iPod, uh, even though you you may think – or your iPad, whatever. You might think the long order could be more helpful. But no, you want the Sorkinist vigor. That's what you want uh, ready to go to defend yourself. So – uh, that's what we recommend for you. That's what we recommend for America and to everyone else out there. Please leave us a review on Fighting in the War Room. We'll read it live on the show uh, and we'll help demystify the incredibly complex structure of our podcast. Um, right now on Apple TV Plus, if you have such a thing, which I still do, uh, you can watch Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks, which is a new movie that would have been in theaters. Um, you know, actually, I what guess it have? did play in theaters. Yes. Yeah, I think it actually did play in theaters anyway. Um, it's an A24 slash Apple release. Um, I think it had been slated for kind of a, for a release on Apple already before the pandemic, if I'm remembering correctly. So it, you know, was blurring the line. Sofia Coppola has said herself in an interview that it's totally fine to watch it at home, which is kind of refreshing to hear someone say. And is really true. It's kind of this like cozy, human-sized movie about a woman played by Rashida Jones who has two small children and a husband in a really nice apartment in Manhattan. Uh, and But she suspects her husband's cheating on her, which makes her bummed out. She can't finish her book and she has small kids, which we all know is hard. Um, and then her father played by Bill Murray swoops back in and kind of validates all her fears that her husband is cheating on her and it becomes kind of a caper where they try to find him and zoom around New York in Bill Murray's beautiful car and go, uh, drink cocktails in quiet bars like Ben Woman's and make me <laughs> very jealous that such a thing is possible. This one of those movies where like, not only does she have a great apartment and like access to that car, but she just has like babysitters on hand at all times. Like she talks about babysitters, which is like never a problem to find one, which I <laughs> well, find. Well, doesn't her uh, mother-in-law enviable. come in and babysit at times? Her mom uh, only when she babysits. flies to Mexico for yeah, one night. And she, yeah, and she also gets like the neighbor girl to like babysit at the last minute. I mean, babysitters were hard before the pandemic. Now they like don't exist because I don't know how you do it. Well, you have nowhere anyway. to go, so it's not really a problem. Is it? Well, you know, there's outdoor safe dining if you uh, so choose, which I have not done because I can't get a babysitter. Anyway, uh, I like this movie quite a bit. I think the reviews to it have been like a little harsh, but that often happens with Sofia Coppola movies where it takes a while for people to come around to them. I'm thinking specifically of The Beguiled, which I think was kind of like brushed off in some way. Um, But David, I feel like I mean, not that Rotten Tomatoes is any metric of how well it's been received, but it is currently 86% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 53% audience score uh, a fragrant aroma of uh, oregano and uh, the sauce is brewing it's fresh tomatoes mm. let's let's check are you just making a like coppola wines joke it's I don't a know. 73 I don't on metacritic is. it's not bad uh yeah i think like i think even the positive reviews have been like it's light it's Let, fine. what number it's did like- metacritic assign my review of on an 83 not uh, sure how they wow. arrived at that but I'll, I'll stand by that that's fine i don't i, mean, I David actually Trey- i don't think it's like Light and fluffy, but it is captivating and 
cool. And I, I was so excited that I, I, I loved it as much as I did. Because, again, the reviews, I kind of was reading middling reviews or saying that it's kind of minor. And I watched, with, watched it with my wife. And um, I think we were both, like, kind of impressed how small it feels and yet how how big it's like if you're in a marriage or if you're in a long-term relationship you know you'll you'll hit a bump in the road at some point and that bump in the road feels gigantic it could be the end of your relationship it could mean that everything you've been putting time into has been a waste of time and this kind of paranoia that she starts building up and this imaginary conflict that she creates or or may not be creating you know it could be happening to her she doesn't know um it just winds her completely up. It's such a relatable feeling. It's so tiny and intimate, but I, I don't know. I don't feel like this type of movie should always be made for like $10,000 in someone's backyard and screening at South by Southwest, which is where these size stories always seem to go. Um, you don't see a movie as elegant as this where you get to like shoot in New York and make it your playground. And like a lot of the joys of this movie is beautiful photographs of the city alive and well. Um, a lot of this is like what you said, sitting in bars and like taking, beholding architecture and, and letting the world around you kind of consume you for a second. Um, and I think Sofia Coppola just has an amazing eye for photographs and that's part of the joy here and, and having a real production, like getting to drive. There's like a French connection chasing in this movie, um, where Bill Murray and Rashida Jones are just driving around, zipping around New York. I don't know. This is a, this is a, a big movie with a little story but it feels really powerful uh can i approach and appreciate this movie from a slightly different tact uh i i think you know not that anything that either of you guys have said is at all invalid uh i found this movie resonated a lot with me more as a work of self-portraiture uh, the character that Rashida Jones is playing is very much a stand-in for Sofia, Sofia Coppola herself. They live in the same neighborhood. Their kids attend the same kind of school. Um, they are around the same age. They even kind of look and sound similar. Uh, if you squint, certainly like they the- They do not look and sound similar. They, I mean, it's the tonality more than anything else. It's like, obviously, Rashida Jones and Sofia Coppola are not doppelgangers, uh, but there is a certain tonality about- in the same way, it's the same sort of connection between uh, Charlotte and Lost in Translation and Sofia Coppola, where if it's sort of like a hop, skip, and a jump away from her, it captures this sort of like underlying ethos that she's trying to express about something in a different shell. But, um, you know, this is a movie to me that is is about uh, not being cool anymore and grappling with that and what it means. I mean, it's a film about an artist who a lot of the details are sketchy, but she's obviously had some success in cultural cachet. She is an author. She has had successful books of what kind we don't even know. But uh, she is now nearing 40. Um, she has two small kids. Uh, she has a husband who pals around with a sort of hipper set. There is a really funny joke at A24's expense uh, during one of the party scenes that really captures the the contrasting vibes between like the domesticity of... Uh, I don't even know what you mean by that. What, what is the joke? Uh, they're at the party. Marlon Wayne's at the party and his, the coworker who's played by Jessica Henwick comes over and says that, or someone comes over and says that there are some, the people from A24 over there and he has to go and talk to them. Um, and so he oh, does. I didn't even hear that. That's funny. Uh, and, <laughs> um, but 
it's a great reference point in terms of understanding the different circles that they're running in these days. Uh, cause contrast that with, uh, you know, Rashida Jones's character being in a PTA mindset and just going hang, having to listen to Jenny Slate complain about her love life at school every afternoon. Jenny Slate is so funny. She's very funny. Yeah. Um, brutal, but, brutal. you know, Sophia Coppola is kind of in the same place where she became in a sort of iconoclastic way when she was only in her twenties, uh, an emblem of a certain kind of cool. Um, and I think a lot of her first films embodied that in every which way. Never forget way. that she used to host a, an, an MTV show. That's how cool she was. She did? Yes. I, didn't know I have either. forgotten this if I have ever known it. What was the show? I'm going to look this up. Keep but, um, she, uh, yeah. but now she is a 40-something mother who lives in New York City and spends most of her time dealing with her kids in school and uh, writes from what I imagine is a gorgeous apartment with huge floor-to-ceiling windows, um, much like the one Rashida Jones has. And, uh, you know, there's she is sort of grappling with what it, finding the excitement in her life now that she's downshifting into a different groove. And like, is she still relevant? And is she uh, and I think that some of the blowback from Beguiled seeped in there in terms of, you know, having something to say and feeling legitimacy as an artist and as a woman who is now taking on this more maternal role in her mid 40s. Um, and all of this stuff is transmutated into uh into Rashida Jones's character in, I think, you know, in a very Sofia Coppola-like milieu, but in, like, very tactile and appreciable ways. Um, and it really felt to me like a movie about that, and an artist, and an artist, a coming of age of an artist at sort of a different point in their life. And it's really poignant and well done, and there's obviously a lot of battle of the sexes stuff going on with her her dad, who is on a very different kind of adventure. Um and uh, it's sweet and small, and it's you know to not to its credit, I think is the first Sofia Coppola movie that, in its least affecting stretches, feels like it could have been made by somebody else. Uh, I'm thinking mm-hmm. particularly of like the last really? scene, which is kind of a dud, and a couple of other smaller moments throughout. Um, I have only seen what, what, it. there's what? some diet. There, there's some longer yeah. dialogue scenes that feel like they there's just a lot more right. talking in this movie than there's ever been in a Sofia Coppola movie, um, and not all of it. Not all of it flies, uh, but I, I, all of her movies are tremendously rewatchable and only become uh, grow deeper with me over time. So I'm hopeful that this one will follow the same pattern. But since it's locked up at a streaming platform, it's never going to be on cable. So I'll have to really go out of my way to find it. Uh, <laughs> so much for that. Yeah, but uh, um, Apple could go under and have to sell. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, True. I, I still I would die for Sofia Coppola. Uh, not that she would ever need to me to um, do it just fine. And uh, I, I, I'm not saying it would be my choice, but, you know, if push came to shove, um, I may have to take that if bullet. If the uh, guillotine came for you. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these thoughts were hardened pre-fatherhood, so I may have to reevaluate now um, in terms of who I would I wanna, and would not die for. Oh, wait, I just I need to, I need to jump in, okay. Katie, and then you can answer your question, which or uh, ask your question, which is that Sophie, Sophia Coppola did host a TV show. It was actually on Comedy Central mm. in 1994. Mm. It was called High Octane, and it was her and Zoe Cassavetes. Oh, that makes too much and, sense. And doing sketches, <laughs> shooting oh. around New York. Yes. Oh, well, I, uh, it's on I, YouTube, I believe, uh, if you want man, to. I aspire that. to fall into more YouTube K-holes and like just dig into this stuff. Uh, and that will, yeah, that will uh, be on there. my list. Um, um, yeah. I want to just go back to what David was saying about it being about this artist kind of in this new period of her life, which I think is really true. And you can see how she's inspired by the idea of like, you're a parent, therefore you don't really have time for yourself. And you're supposed to like put all your creative energy into these specific times between like school drop off. 
But it's not really that much about her art, which I found kind of frustrating about it. Like, we don't know what kind of writer she is. We have no idea what she's writing. We don't know what this office space is that she goes to to write, which is, like, separate from her beautiful apartment. Is it an office um, space? I thought it was their office. Yeah, it is. They, it I mean, is. It's all, like, it's all Soho. Who could tell? It, like, it is in their apartment. Yeah. Versus it, it is in their apartment. I it think. is. Okay. It's, it's, like, an absurdly nice space either way. These that, people are very rich. rich and everyone and in the as, movie is very rich. And it's hard and to it's tell And it's unclear as the movie, like, the movie kind of ends in this place of her, like, you know, finding more inspiration again. Um, but it's kind of unclear how that works either. I just, I found the, like, caginess around her work kind of frustrating. And, like, and maybe it's because Sofia Coppola didn't want to make it as much about herself. But, like, it made the character feel thinner. Yeah. Um, whereas like Bill Murray, you get this whole sense of like this art world that he's operating in and how he's like flying to Mexico to go check in with somebody <laughs> and knows all these people. And like, even though she's isolated, I don't think you had to have her be like quite. Yeah. yeah we don't know where she's there. come from, really. We don't know what she does. Like the first scene of the movie is them getting married. So she's ultimately existing in this world. Well, the first scene of the in movie is just like, him, here is, here is a Sofia Coppola movie in miniature. It's like the most dense blast of Sofia, Sofia Coppola-ness. And it feels Sophia. like a perfume, a perfume commercial in a way in that prologue. And then it sort of melts away and you're like, here's the afterglow. Oh, the wedding, yeah. It's like, here yeah. is the, the domesticity. And the mundanity that comes with that after the Sofia Coppola movie experience has, has resolved. Sure. And I think that's a really interesting pivot. But I, I really want to second everything that Katie said um, just because I agree with it. I think that, uh, you know, Sofia Coppola has been very open about the inspiration she's drawn from her own life, from her larger than life father um, and the parts of him that she borrowed uh, to put into Bill Murray's character here. And I, I certainly understand the temptation to want to you know, not just have this completely explicit self-portrait um, and and put that in the background a little bit, the artistic side of it. But, I, you know, maybe it's just because of the kind of movie that I want to see and because I'm so fascinated by her and, and the art that she makes. But yeah, I mean, I would have loved for her to lean that much harder into the uh, autobiographical element of it and just make the character a filmmaker and like, you know, really go whole hog into... uh, Or to like make her a real novelist to like have some information about like the kind of work that she's doing and like if like she becomes inspired by her kids by the end or like something, they're just have more... Yeah, I mean the movie is 90 some odd minutes long. It wants to feel like a nightcap. It's very, you know, it's the champagne fizz of a film and... That's all well and good, and I really enjoyed this movie, but um, there's no – and that's the movie that, want, that Sofia Coppola wanted to make, but there's definitely a part of me you know. um, that you know holds her up on this pedestal that wishes that she would have made the two-hour and five-minute version of this that really yeah. slows down and digs into these characters a little bit more. You know what's kind of the better version of this, I realize, is a very Murray Christmas Oh boy! <laughs> Which I never saw. It's much fizzier and it's much more like intoxicating, and the hours are passing even in a short amount of time. And obviously, it's like filled with Christmas music, and it's entirely Murray riffing and stuff. But that that feeling, I, I mean, that that's that's the one thing not disliked, but like I was kind of removed from the movie. You don't feel like you're on the adventure. It doesn't actually feel like a caper very often because it takes place over a bunch of days and then they go to Mexico. It has like that Sandler movie vibe where we're like going on vacation for a second. We're cutting <laughs> away to the beach in a wide shot. Um, but like why why does it take place over like the whole, not to, you know, 
criticize. Why isn't it a one crazy night movie? Kinda. It all, yeah. but it has that yeah. flavor. Like it, it almost wants to be that, and yeah. it just can't it's quite make sense like, of the story um, in that time. And, which and I, I think when the the log but line, it's not fizzy enough. The the log line. Well, it's a Sofia Coppola movie. I mean, she's never going to make fucking like you know a screwball comedy. And there are moments here. What are you that talking feel, about? There's literally a Sofia Coppola champagne out there. She's the definition of fizzy. She didn't really have much to do with the uh, creation of that, and uh, I, I've had I it. It's delicious. That. It gave me a really nice champagne buzz at my sister's young. wedding. Uh, but the, um, the, when the logline of this movie came out originally, it, it did say that it was, uh, whether accurately or not, I don't know if the screenplay has changed since then. Probably not. Probably this was just a message in communicating it. But uh, it did say that it was just kind of a one crazy night movie. Um, and I do think that that may have worked better in some respects. But, uh, you know, it's... I, I, the stakes are are low in a way, but also very important for the rest of this character's life and her marriage and her relationship with her father. I mean, it, it is light and fizzy and disposable, but uh, I think there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, as Josh yeah, Rowland might say in a Coen Brothers short, there's uh, a lot of truth there. Uh, a whole heck of a lot of truth. And uh, is it my favorite Sofia Coppola movie? Probably yes. the opposite. Oh, uh, no. But um, and I hope that she feels after processing this, you know, she, or she feels empowered anyway to sort of earn back whatever feelings of lost cool or relevance. Movie now. <sighs> but uh, I hope she I mean, her next thing is going to be a uh, miniseries. Um, oh. For also an Apple, right? Apple, for Apple, right. That makes sense. I think that might be also be for Apple. And it is a, uh, it's like a bigger period. I mean, it would make sense for it to be for Apple. And these, they tend to make these like forces alliances with these streaming platforms when directors do this, but it's going to be a bigger period thing. It's based off an Edith Wharton novel. Um, and hopefully that will, uh, I don't know, give her the ambition she needs to continue swinging for the fences. But I this like felt this like a great, movie. this felt like a great recharge. Why do all movies have to be so big? They can be little. You were, you were, I mean, you were kind of just complain. I mean, I see what the point you're making. You're oh. trying to say like it's a big, small movie. I get it. Uh, yeah, no, that, and that's be, a, that's a plus here. I mean, I little like, and be sharper. I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Katie. If there was more to Rashida Jones's character, I think the the impact would be even larger. I just i I liked Marlon Wayans in this movie a lot, and he mm. and I I think his character is kind of challenging because he's like, it, I you, I the whole time I'm like, what is going on with this guy? What's his deal? Is he working yeah. just a lot? Is he re- truly ambitious? Am I accidentally like this sometimes where I'm just like, I'm working, I'm working. And, and it creates a lot of doubt for me where I'm like, I don't want to send the wrong message. I, you know, we want to, uh, you know, tell, tell our, our loved ones that we love them, but we also want to be ambitious. How do you deal with that? And we're, and how do you, how are you seen if you're acting like that to other people? Are you, does it seem like you're turning away from them? What do you, I mean, I think about this a lot where like, what do you sacrifice to be, truly ambitious and truly successful and um it's a real give and take when you are in love with someone and have a relationship and i think that marlon wayne's character ends up being really true to that experience i don't know what uh what's his name from phoenix who sofia coppola is married to is, is like Mars. May, maybe it is something uh, like that. luckily phoenix contributed to the soundtrack and did a wonderful song so maybe he's he gets back in bed with this one. i i do think that sofia coppola doesn't get near the credit she deserves for casting um, especially for like out of the box casting choices, the kind of adulation that's reserved for your Quentin Tarantino's, I think she deserves just as much. Uh, this is another extremely low key, but all the more effective and you know worth celebrating for that uh, bit of casting. Uh, Marlon Wayans has never played a part like this, um, although he has shown occasional interest in more serious roles. I remember him in Requiem for a Dream. 
Um, but this is, he's like the anchor to this movie emotionally. I mean, he is, even though his behavior is in question, there is a solidness to his character, uh, a sort of centering force. And he plays it so well. And I think your know, patches hit the nail on the head talking about how, um, even in spite of that, because maybe of the baggage we bring to the table, knowing his work and what he usually does, that there might be something more antic going on under the surface. But uh, it all meshes really, really well and is an, is an interesting like counterbalance to the energy that bring, Bill Murray brings in with Rashida Jones kind of caught in the middle between these two men. Um, great, great casting. Rashida Jones is a wonderful Sofia Coppola proxy. Bill Murray is Bill Murray. Um, what more can you say? Put it on uh, the rocks. Bill Murray was great. Oh, thought Bill Murray was great, worthy of more than just being Bill Murray. But, you know, he's also Bill Murray. So he's capable of phoning it in, and he didn't for this one. Also, he drinks, Bill Murray drinks champagne with ice in it. Did you guys know that? In, like in real life or in this movie? In real life, Bill Murray drinks champagne with ice in it so that he can drink all night. We have seen this, Katie. You and I have been at a party with Bill Murray. I don't want to pat ourselves on the back. I don't want to name like. We will never believe you. But we have been at a party at TIFF with Bill Murray, and he was drinking champagne right. with ice in it. And I asked someone why he did that, and he said, that's Bill Murray's go-to drink because the man wants to drink all night. And if you want to drink all night, you have to water down your champagne. And I don't wow. know if it was Sofia Coppola champagne, but it should have been. Someday you will find me caught beneath the landslide in a champagne supernova sky someday you will find me caught beneath the landslide in a champagne supernova a champagne supernova in the sky uh, okay uh, well under with some reluctance i watched uh <laughs> Mike Flanagan is that his name? Mick Flanagan? Yes. Mike. Mike Flanagan. Mike uh, Flanagan. Mick Flanagan. Is Mick. that what you said? I I could have started this segment. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Mick um, but uh, I I watched two for one Mick Flanagan's today as uh, Mick Flanagan. <laughs> Mick Flanagan. <laughs> I watched the Haunting of Bly Manor. I say reluctantly because a uh, I don't know these these Netflix miniseries sometimes can be hit or miss. And b I tried out the Haunting of Hill House which was the first in this anthology, the first installment of this anthology series last year. I only made it through the first scene. It felt kind of chintzy and jump scary, and I was like, not for me, and I passed. Wow. Um, I know, One I know. One scene. But listen, I, it's not like I... I it sounds farther than I would have made it. It's not like I was deciding forever that this was objectively bad. I was just making a judgment that it wasn't... I, I didn't have the time to give to it in the moment. Um, I People seemed excited about... The Haunting of Bly Manor, uh, which is a completely separate story, but recycles some of the same cast and has some of the, you know, Mike Flanagan and some of the other creative crew is back. Um, and it sounded, this one sounded a little bit more up my alley, especially when people were saying that it really kind of deviates away from gothic horror. Even it's inspired by Henry James, the turning of the screw, turn of the screw. Um, and, uh, it is, it sounded a little bit more up my alley, uh, talking about how it swerves towards a love story, um, a haunted love story, the idea that all ghost stories are love stories. This shit is my drug. I love it. So I plunged through all nine episodes of The Haunting of Bly Manor and I generally enjoyed myself quite <laughs> a bit. Uh, I, uh, I, I thought it was really strong. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to kick this over to Dave to set up 
the the what'sits. But uh, Dave, my my reservations are basically <laughs> mm-hmm. just that it was. <laughs> No, I, 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 I Dave, no one can see Dave's face when, when David said, I'm going to kick it over to the Watsons. Dave the plot gave, and everything. What? Dave, you set up the plot oh. and then we can pick it apart. Oh, I get to do the uh, plot? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Oh, hey. Not hey, you. Hey, I don't, uh, I mean, I don't think we necessarily have to do the plot. It's similar in the turn of the screw. If you use the turn of the screw, if you aren't aware of Henry James' turn of the screw, if you've seen Nicole Kidman's The Others, the plot is very similar where you have a governess who comes to take care of some children and the children, something may ride with the children. And we get to figure out why uh, in all those stories. They're so precocious. Uh, Katie well, would just I, hate them so much. I didn't spoil anything because in all those stories, there are sort of like different reasons why the children. But the little girl right. is so good. And apparently, not only is she. The little boy also is good. The little boy is also good, but his his shtick is a little bit more just like possessed, angry child. The little girl is playing something far more unusual and. I think it's a really arresting performance. And the big plot twist is that she also voices Peppa Pig. Uh, (laughs) So that was a real mind blower. I don't really know what Peppa Pig is yet. Hasn't Peppa Pig been around for like 10 years? She's like one of the Peppa Pigs. Or maybe she just voices a Peppa Pig in Times Square. It's unclear on her IMDb. But uh, I I actually, I thought that um, one thing I liked about the series were all the ghosts. That's really a cheap gimmick, but they're tucked away in the frames and like background of various frames. Uh, you can that's back from the previous yes, uh, and you you can read on various websites and Vulture and whatnot um, about all the opportunities to spot these ghosts. It's a fun little detail. Um, it kind of peters out as it goes along for plot details, but I appreciated it. But um, I really, I just thought that the cast and the characters were really well drawn. I think that the show doesn't always do them. Justice, it's a bit scattered. The pacing over these nine episodes is bizarre. I mean, the penultimate episode doesn't even take place in this timeline. Um, and then you sort of lose your connection to these characters by the time you're hit by the emotional whammy of the finale. I mean, there are things like that that I found rather jarring, even when watching it in short order. But uh, I was really affected by the characters. The last episode hit home Um the cheesy framing device comes through, even though it's super cheesy. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think the performances are very strong. Everyone was very lovable. Um, it hit all the right Henry James vibes. Uh, it, it is going to be a better remake of The Others than the remake of The Others that has been threatened. <laughs> uh, Shit, there's a remake of The Others? Well, yeah. supposedly. But uh, somebody realized Bly Manor was good enough. So why not? It made me It made me excited enough to want to go back and rewatch the previous incarnation of the show and certainly check in if there's a third. Uh, and I w- That's actually, this is a good time for me to step in. David, yeah. if you liked The Haunting of Bly Matter, here's what I'm going to tell you about The Haunting of Hill House. The character work is equally as deep. So if you dug it and if you liked how The Haunting slowly became about people, you're going to also dig that in The Haunting of Hill it House. It wasn't the depth that I love so much as the warmth, I would say, but fine. Sure. I mean, I would say that the difference is uh, at the end of Haunting of Bly Manor uh, versus at the end of Haunting of Hill House. The end of Haunting of Bly Manor has, I think, a lot more to do with how uh, people can create hauntings. Mm. If I, I Not to spoil too much, whereas the Haunting of Hill House uh, definitely, I think, at the end reveals that there's a monster... Uh, that sort of nudges people in like a direction, like a force that you can't necessarily. Yeah, Hill House is about cracking a family apart and hoping they can get back together. And mm. Bly Manor is about found family. And I know a lot of people responded 
well to the, the that first series, and we're kind of down on Bly Manor. But I, I I think I liked Bly Manor even more because of the found family aspect. They got a lot. Uh, they're able to get a lot of different types of people in the house and the standalone episodes on each character are really quite moving. I, um, I loved, uh, who plays the, 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 the housekeeper, Hannah, um, the, the housekeeper. Hannah yeah, Gross. Uh, her name is Tania Miller. She's wonderful. Um, and she is so, she gets a standalone episode that's so moving and she's kind of getting like rattled through time, not to get too spoilery, but like I found the filmmaking really complimentary to her performance. And uh, Raul Coley, who was in um, I Zombie, gets a really dramatic kind of heavy role in this that I thought was really Their storylines, his storyline with Hannah's are sort of intertwined uh, and very yeah. movingly so. And then the main character is uh, the actress uh, Victoria Pedretti. She was the kind of tortured sister from the first season. Now she's she has actual things to do in, yeah, in Bly Manor, and she's maybe the weaker part. Oh, I don't know. I think that there's something really. I haven't seen any of her other performances, so I can't speak to this. I can't say if if this is just. She hasn't done that much. Who she, she is, right? But really I didn't see the first episode of uh, Apple TV's. Uh, what's that Spielberg show? Amazing stories. Oh boy! If she awful. were, if only she were in Ted Lasso. Uh, but the <laughs> um, her perform her character here is very peculiar and really grew on me over the course of the series. I think she was done a, a disservice by, you know, her the concerns that are fueling that character, what she's haunted by, eventually melt into like the greater tapestry of what's happening yeah. here. But I do think that it was a miscalculation to kind of resolve what that was. So completely in the fourth episode or fifth episode and then just sort of not touch on it again even though i found that her story is especially satisfying towards the end and the direction that it goes yeah um, what i love about this show is that it kind of has a conclusion and then we get an epilogue yeah. episode that really bowled me over it's an interesting it has nine episodes yeah. of the well, show, right and, and they're, they're really poorly paced be, but they're powerful it's strange yeah <laughs> I think it was originally supposed to be a 10 or 12 episode series. So that, that Coda episode was even supposed to be even more Coda-y hmm. when it was initially conceived. Which I could see where why the interesting thing about watching Mike Flanagan is he slowly revealed himself to be like the king of horror adaptation. Like not it doesn't have to be a book. It doesn't have to be, you know, Doctor Sleep or a Stephen King novel. But even stuff like this or what he did with uh, Ouija, Ouija. And being able to create a sequel that was more compelling than the original. He's just got a really cool idea of like expanding ideas, uh, but not in like an M. Nod Shyamalan way where he has to break a zeitgeist mm. or anything. He just but, like executes, I think, very consistently. It, it, you know, it, the, the problems with uh, the many problems with Dr. Sleep are not necessarily his fault. They're baked in Stephen King's writing. But my least favorite parts about Bly Manor were also about the various rules of like child possession and ghost logic and all I thought that, that was shit. Cool. And oh, I was just I, like, oh, yeah, yeah, my eyes glazed over. No, that is cool. Um, but <laughs> it's an interesting way. It's an interesting way. Every you time. You want to hear. Mike Flanagan comes up against something where I'm like, certainly he's not going to do it this way. He does it and he makes me do it. I don't necessarily like like a lot of the Shining recreation in Doctor Sleep, but I think he pulled it off the best way you could pull. Like, yeah. I mean, we've seen Ready Player One, so we know what it looks like when it's bad. Wolf. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, Ready, Ready Player say, One is definitely a more interesting movie than Doctor Sleep, but... Uh, what the hell? Not, uh, um, stop. Just stop. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I want to I note something that's going to be minorly spoilery. So if you're going to watch the show, maybe skip ahead 30 seconds or a minute. Um, so there was a glitch with the Netflix screeners that I was given. And 
later admitted by Netflix. So thank you, Netflix, for telling me that I wasn't out of my mind. I accidentally watched the eighth episode of Bly Manor first. Oh. Because that's how it looked. Oh. And the eighth episode, slightly spoilery, is a all-black-and-white episode that tells the backstory of Bly Manor. So you're supposed to get eight episodes in to the whole show until you realize, like... Where did the ghost come from? What's how, going yeah, on? Basically, how did it basically the show your... ends, and then it'll tell you how it worked. Yeah, so you Wait, watch the how, how it works. It's, yeah, it's like watching a magic trick after being shown exactly how it's done. And uh, I was yeah, so thankful to have that experience. Like I got the spoilers, and now I'm like, I know something the characters don't, and I like that. I like I like being like I can see the connectivity, the thematic connectivity of these characters to the ones of the past and i loved having the spoilers so do you think anti-spoiler culture watching the conspiracy theorist do you think that someone at netflix recognized that the show was not (laughs) about suspense that this the the narrative of the season had nothing to do its power didn't hinge on you know what the source of these ghosts were so much as the characters that they were affecting and was like i know what i'll do i will uh make critics see the show for what it could have been by putting this episode first uh and totally color their experience by showing well, do you feel the like black the eighth episode initially. do you feel like knowing where the blind man or ghosts really came from and the kind of romantic element there did that add something it, to the, I, the I texture feel like of the show does it's like and you do ultimately need to know that backstory and i'd love to hear from dave on this point but I, I just felt like it was misplaced because it completely interrupts the momentum of what's actually at stake here involving the characters in the present day or in 1987 when the show takes place. It's hard to place that episode. I don't know where yeah. you would. I would almost want it as like a series of cold opens. Like what if the first 10 minutes sure. of every episode was it broken up into pieces or something? Dave? Uh I like it. Um, I think if you break it up over cold opens, like Patches is talking about, you're doing like an American horror story thing, which I don't like. True. The reason I think that episode works in both its intended place and in the spoiler place that you took is the excitement I had during that episode is the exact same excitement that you had having watched out of order, which is, oh, here's the echoes of the trauma. So I just saw how they started first which kind of made me feel uh, worse for the characters in the show because they were all caught in a cycle that even they weren't aware of. Whereas I think for you, Patches, it would be the same feeling, but it would be watching them. It would be watching the marital infidelity play out throughout generations mm. and like that sort of thing. But I think that... And the... I think, I think the, the, the result is as cool because that's what a ghost story is. is it's like this psychic trauma scars people beyond you into your found family but i think if you get that story the backstory off the top or even in chunks throughout it builds a sort of bedrock of of that being uh so fundamental to the story whereas the way it plays out now you know the eighth episode is all the backstory and all the lore and then the ninth episode is all the consequences of that but it feels like we are dealing with the ramifications the echoes of characters that we just learned about that are interrupting the stories of characters that we've been with the entire way. And yeah. so had I watched this the way Patches did, and this was buried deep, deep, deep underground, the, the bedrock of the story, um, that would have felt, you know, by the time that, you know, spoiler alert, you know, in the fifth or sixth episode when the lady of the lake shows up and grabs Peter Quill, uh, I would have been like, I would have just forgotten about her. And it would have been like, oh, shit, you know, and she comes out of nowhere and kills him. Um, grabs, grabs the Star-Lord. Yeah. Peter Quinn. What's his name? Peter Quinn. Peter Quinn. Quinn. Yeah, I'm fucking up all the names tonight. Whatever. It's a week before uh, the 2020 election. Everything goes. But uh, yeah. So, but I generally enjoyed it quite a bit. It It's more fresh. It's, 
it's frustrating because it's so close, I felt like, to real greatness that some of these flaws are holding it back. Um, but I would be interested in seeing a third season that maybe... Because are you saying, Dave, that you didn't, or in patches both, that you guys didn't enjoy the ending of the first season, that it was a letdown? No, no, no I think I the first it. season, the first season plays a little bit more like a magic trick, uh, but I really liked it. And I, I, they almost, uh, in this season, did like a callback echoing to like the theme of the previous season and decided against it uh behind the scenes knowledge i learned um at the last second so i mm. i it's its own thing uh but i do think it feels as complete um even if it does have some of the herky jerky story elements that okay. are also in bly manner just cuz i think that's how uh when you're adapting the old types of stories that are just you know mostly based around dread or am i being gaslit or not i think a lot of those are going to you know be uh, strange in a world where we're used to serialized narratives like I don't know the outsider or something where we're like all right hunt a killer 10 episodes hunting a killer uh, Bly Manor it starts with a framing device story and then because of that can turn off into other stories whenever it feels like it. All right, so, I, I like it. So just uh, some quick closing notes here. First uh, is that Raul Coley is uh, working with Mike Flanagan on another show, I believe for Netflix, um, details of which are currently under wraps. Uh, maybe it's a third season of this. It sounds from the interview that I learned this from, like it's something entirely different. Who knows? But that's exciting. Yeah, uh, Flanagan has a deal with Netflix. He's doing yeah. a few shows. I yeah, think all these creatives, are, they're aligned to like certain streaming. They just like make partnerships with individual streamers and continue working for them. Uh, that's why Sofia Coppola is going back to Apple and like Flanagan will probably be at Netflix for a while. Second and far more importantly is that Greg Sestero of The Room fame plays the fiance in the framing device. Uh, I did not realize that. um, I'm only realizing that now as I Google the cast. Uh, And third is that uh, the thing that's stopping me from from rewatching Haunting of Hill House right now is that I'm so hooked on this other Netflix miniseries called The Queen's Gambit, which I would encourage you out there to watch because we... Just blowing this mini segment. Because we (laughs) may be talking about it next week. My wife is Borat. He's back, baby. Borat returns in Borat, subsequent movie film delivery, a prodigious bribe to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. Um, 14 years after the original Borat, which feels like a lifetime ago. They mentioned in the movie, like back in 2006. I'm like, oh, right. This was Can a I just say that Bush has era not, politics. Borat has not aged a day. Not the concept, but the actual character. I think the mustache helps. It, it might, but you know, whatever whatever Borat is drinking over in Kazakhstan to stay young, it's working. I think it's pee or something. Mm. I'm not not to get too gross, but uh, this movie certainly gets gross. Uh, Borat is back. Oh, it in gets all, gross so fast. <laughs> all of its glory that I didn't know if it was going to be ready for 2020 prime time. Taste has changed in this world. I didn't know. Well, even after our episode last week, after we made countless Jeffrey Tubin masturbation jokes, I wasn't sure if that was ready for prime time. And then I watched Borat 2, and I'm like, we're fine. We've done nothing wrong here. Um, because There's Borat... not really masturbation jokes in Borat, though, I don't think. 
No, there's there's self pleasure. There's jokes. vagina dentata jokes. I mm-hmm. guess that's yes, a lot of the word vagine, but I wouldn't consider vagine. that a, a masturbation joke necessarily. Um, but yeah, Borat Borat is back to skewer the Trump era. I watched this movie this week and immediately thought like, if Trump loses, hopefully, uh, uh, this will be the ultimate document of the Trump era. It's got everything we've been talking about. I feel like for the last four years. And somehow it's a sweet movie about a father and daughter who come together and um, step over conservative values and horrible government issues to to become closer and more understanding of each other. I thought it was quite beautiful in the end. And I'm curious what you all thought about Borat 2. Did he make a comeback? Can you do a Borat movie in 2020 that is acceptable? Can you... Can you say something with this type of humor? I saw people online, oh, the discourse has just been absolutely <laughs> wild since not, you know, there was the whole Rudy Giuliani thing. And then I saw people being like, is Borat, and this is from like New York Times media columnist Ben Smith being like, isn't Borat just the same as Project Veritas? And I'm just like, what? wow, we're blowing this whole thing up. It's go crazy on Borat Town. Um, and that's I think that's a real, good sign. That's a that's good That's real review. galaxy brain. That is real galaxy. That's media galaxy brain for sure. But what what did you all make of of Borat? Is it was it time for another Borat? Did we need Borat? Did it work? I am not sure. I ever saw the first Borat in its entirety. <gasps> I I have seen a lot of it. I was like living in New York when it came out. Like I remember the phenomenon of Borat very well. But like I know pieces of it, but don't really know much about the narrative of the first one. I understand that the current one has a lot more actual story to it, which is what I found. Moving in the same way that you did patches, although I am not a father of a daughter, so I feel like you should really use your privilege <laughs> to, um, to talk about this movie from that perspective. Um, but yeah, Maria Bakalova, who has been, I think, rightly praised uh, all around the place, she is both like an essential addition to the narrative of the story in that it becomes this surprisingly touching father-daughter story, but also she's like an unknown, so she could go and do all this stuff, like meet Rudy Giuliani, that Tasha Baron Cohen can't do because everyone knows who Borat is now. Um, she's amazing, and she carries this like great emotional weight in this patently ridiculous story to the point that like at one point he drops her off at like a babysitter's house, and this woman who... like interacts with her and like tells her she has self-worth and that like she doesn't have to like get plastic surgery because her father tells her she has to it's really sweet i really wonder who that woman was her massive like, titties you- will not help her float in the pool as she <laughs> says. um yeah that woman had to eventually been in on it i think I don't know. I can't tell you immediately from the dog clicker if she had to be in. It's really tough to tell, like, who knows and who doesn't, because at some point, Borat spends multiple days living with two MAGA head dudes. And it's like, how does this happen? How do you do that? At some point, I think, like, I, so Chris Rosen, our friend, uh, did an article for VanityFair.com about, like, how some of these were filmed. And, like, in some cases, they do tell people, like, we're making a movie. Go along, like you're an extra in this scene, go along with it. Like at the debutante ball scene, like that was all like kind of staged. Um, so you imagine that, like, I mean, these people are surrounded by cameras. They like, they know they're being filmed. So I think people have an incentive to kind of go along with it that they wouldn't otherwise. And some of them reveal themselves to be terrible. But what I like about this that as I don't think the original had as much of is it lets real people be like, ridiculous and kind of like conned but good like the woman who's the babysitter there's one who's a holocaust survivor who he interacts yeah so he with. walks even into like, a synagogue after narrating <laughs> went to the synagogue to wait for the next mass shooting yeah that, i mean i don't <laughs> oh, think oh god that line. yeah that that bit uh that bit does not really play for me i mean the rest of that scene sure but the setup i thought was 
unnecessary. But I think speaking to Katie's point and also the bit with the two uh, conspiracy theorists who he lives with. No, it's uh, Yag Shalom is as funny as that scene gets. Um, but I think more importantly, the uh, gist of the, the movie, as is epitomized by that sequence in which she moves in with those conspiracy theorists, is that the original Bora was about exposing a lot of the endemic racism uh, and hatred that is just under the surface uh, in this country. And now, 16 years later, and something that had me laughing earlier in the segment was when Patches sort of set up the image in my mind of like the Borat signal being shot into the sky because uh, he is needed again after 14 years. <laughs> and it's just a giant mustache. But uh you know, is that now all the things that the original Borat labored to expose are clear as day as if they weren't already, but now they are blindingly so. They have been codified into public office, uh, into the Oval Office, in fact, um, and are at risk of being more permanently ensconced. And uh, it is kind of about a little bit more, you know, it pokes fun at that there is the Jews will not replace us cake um, and things of that nature, which, you know, once again show how already on the uh, line so many people in this country are and amenable to being pulled over into anti-Semitism or racism of other kinds. Um, but the movie, I think, is a lot more interested in, in exposing the, the common goodness beneath all people that exist underneath these prejudices. Um, and, uh, yes, the, the father-daughter stuff is very sweet. I think it's about Target, taking, you know, aim at bigger fish in the Rudy Giuliani finale, Mike Pence, um, exposing how the hypocrisy that was really street level in the last one has moved to the halls of power. Um, that stuff is funny, but I will say I, you know, I was tasked with along with some other members of the IndieWire team of reaching out to a lot of the, um, people who appear in this movie and sort of understanding the stories behind the story. And I spoke to the woman who plays the sugar daddy who uh, Tutar visits. The sugar baby. Sugar baby, rather, of course. Um, and she she's is advising her on how to get a sugar daddy. Uh, I re- She's an Instagram influencer. I naturally reached out to her over Instagram. I have not read the other press that she's done, but um, she was telling me that she was under the impression she was going to be appearing in a Netflix series of some kind. She knew that the person she was talking to was an actress and was kind of leaning into it. You know, she is a sugar baby and is unapologetic about that. And I think unlike a lot of other people who are sort of gotcha'd in the movie, um, is kind of just, you know, this is who I am. This is what I do. Uh, and I, you know, you can make whatever moral value judgments you, you want. But I think that there is a level of straightforwardness that is, too, that is somewhat admirable to her character. And of all the people in this movie, she doesn't need to put her head under the sand. But apparently she was getting so much shit that she sent me an Instagram message after I just sent her a few simple questions where she – it sounded like on the brink of tears. It was just like, I, I'm thank you so much just for being nice to me. This has been an incredibly hard couple of days. Uh, and it did make me think – twice about uh, as much as I enjoyed this movie and especially the first half as hard as I laughed um, that uh, which is surprising because I think the first Borat movie was such an event when I saw it in theaters it was such like a raucous like Beatlemania type experience the IMAX 68th (laughs) street and streaming is the last place a movie like this should play and there really this should have been an argument as to why comedy shouldn't be just shuttled to VOD and thrives in theaters obviously that's not possible now um, so it is what it is but uh, it did make me a little reticent about some of the, the people who are in the line of fire 
to making a movie like this. Obviously, you have your Rudy Giuliani's on one hand. You have the Jews will not replace us ladies uh, making the, the big from Katie Rich's own South Carolina um, right down the street from where Katie Rich grew up. I was asking Katie to go down and talk to that woman for me. Um, and Katie refused. <laughs> That'll work for you. Uh, she does not. Uh, but uh, the – yeah, I mean some of this stuff, it 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 does rub me the wrong way. Um, but, you know, not enough to stop me from enjoying the movie. Yeah. And I think, you know, the sugar baby, the sugar baby girl does not need me to, you know, simp for her, as they say. She will be fine. This will all drive a ton of attention to her, which is exactly yeah. what they traffic on. And so she I mean, will survive. this movie survive, is definitely uh, a lesson in never, never tweet. You know, if you're, if your entire life is, is self-promotion, you're in danger of, of this backfiring on you being caught. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's like the ultimate moral of the movie. But no, I don't think it's the ultimate. It. For, for some people, I'm just, of the many morals, I think it is one moral. Uh, Dave, what did but you I, think Dave, of Borat? Yeah, Dave. Um, uh, fine comedy, too dangerous to be widely released and lauded as a good comedy. Wow. Because uh, in 2006, we maybe, as an American, you know, public, could have reckoned with immigrants a little bit more. I think now, in a time where we're demonizing immigrants, going back to the Kazakhstan well and throwing a lot more misogyny on top of it as a father-daughter story, is such a hurtful lens that it comes off as punching down every time he's not punching at Americans, which is fine. But in a world where I've had Nathan for you, you don't need to do that. There's nothing uh, the, the way there's nothing in Song of the South, the way black people portrays <laughs> slaves in Song of the South, that isn't done either equally or greater here in Borat 2. The reason we're okay with it is because it's an immigrant. It's a dumb immigrant. And, you know, I, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen has uh, acknowledged this. His, like, official statement to the New York Times was, I chose Kazakhstan because it was a place that almost nobody in the U.S. knew anything about, which allowed us to create a wild, comedic, fake world. The real Kazakhstan is a beautiful country with a modern, proud society, the opposite of Borat's version. Uh, but uh, his, you know, quote is on a article that is about... Kazakhstan adapting the tourist slogan Kazakhstan very nice uh where essentially their tour their tourism board was just going to be like ah shit another Borat let's just let it go away and not make any comment and it was uh actually a um high school junior in Los Angeles who uh was from Kazakhstan who came up with the idea of maybe recontextualizing it and using it as a Kazakhstan tourism and his argument, uh, this high school junior, is that this generation of people are not going to react like Kazakhstan did in 2006 and ban the movie. They're much more aware that, you know, the Internet exists and if people want to find out about the real Kazakhstan, then they can, which I also agree with. But I also think that gives that like that applies to all of the issues that are very rightly brought up in this comedy, where if you want to know how they really stand and if you want to know that America's on the wrong side of them, all you kind of need to do is Google it for the news. So I had a real problem with the framing device for this comedy. In terms of the actual setup, the execution of it, uh, even some of the voiceover lines that, you know, maybe, gone too, maybe went too far, I think that's all interesting. But like at the beginning of this movie, he shows up in Texas and he can't walk around as Borat because he's dumb foreign reporter, which is the name of the Halloween costume for Borat. 
And everybody who's coming up to him is exactly the type of person who doesn't realize that they're making fun of immigrants by liking Borat, which is the problem with this movie. Well, but I think that one of the things this movie does better than the original is that in this movie, I think it would be much harder for that type of viewer to find this funny without running into cognitive dissonance that made it impossible for them to to laugh at the joke that is also at their expense. I think in the first one, it, it, you know, the, the, the Twain was too far apart and you could uh, watch this and be as uh, worthy of scorn as any of the people mocked in the movie and still think it was funny and that Borat was a funny character. But here I think the aim is so clearly targeted at those people um, that – you know, I mean, maybe, I they'll, maybe they'll is. laugh at it's like just the like, abortion scene or the pro-life scene where she eats the plastic baby and then has to go to the pro-life abortion clinic, which is a uh, complete like that's one of yeah, those examples yeah. where like the more contrived the plot beat is, the funnier it is. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good setup. But in like there. in 2000, in the 2006 movie, he goes to like this very proper white dinner and they allow him to bring his shit in a bag back to the table. But the second he brings a black sex worker, that's like the lines crossed. And that's the social satire. Here is, here's a really funny situation where two actors are pretending to be dumb immigrants that can't communicate that she swallowed a plastic baby. And they set it up in something that was... I mean, I guess that's the joke, but then it's like, what's the joke? I don't think the joke is that they're immigrants. Okay. I mean... Yeah. Well, the joke is at the expense of the guy who works there. It's not... I mean, the miscommunication is part of what makes it funny, and like the miscommunication that they know what they're talking about and he doesn't know what they're talking about is what's funny. It's not actually that he doesn't understand what they're talking about because they're immigrants. He thinks they want an abortion and that he <laughs> impregnated his daughter. Yeah, yes, but like the assumption of that is different. Where if it's uh, two immigrants, two white people, two black people. Right. And so having a non-American comment on America like that, the switch of the joke is we take this we take this uh, foreign person. It's it's the fucking taxi driver character. All I think the again. immigrant aspect of it makes the other people more comfortable. It also gives them yeah. permission yeah. to it gives them permission to enforce their beliefs and, and sort of stand behind them because they feel as if they are coming across an empty vessel who's like out of their depth and doesn't know the proper way of doing yeah. things in America. And so they see it as an opportunity is yes. an invitation to just be like to, exactly to force their beliefs on someone who's going to be more receptive to them I, I think um, because by they, having they are coming from a position of strength. Yes, they, I mean, they but exert it, it, America first behavior. Sure, but if you have, you know, a black woman who in scene number one as a babysitter is accepting of the woman drinking out of a dog bowl and by scene number three is like driving her in a car as she like, you know, yells, this is all really funny, but what's the, what's the She's joke? not accepting of uh, her drinking out of a dog bowl. What do you mean? She tells her she can do better. She yeah. tells her she's, yeah, we drink out of glasses here, but like that's different than educating. I, I just feel like um, I get it that uh, Borat should have been retired because this is not a helpful movie to anything. I don't Do you think like that it. it's different that he's often playing an American in his like in, in costume because he can't be Borat like he's playing some like giant, I think like, I think that would have been great. I think if he would have no, come back is, with like though. a different Yeah, no, I think if he would have come back with a different character throughout the entire movie, but the hmm. entire comedy premise 
is it's like uh you know porky pig has some great cartoons he's based around a speech impediment like that's hmm. that's the reality is that the so Borat- board is a poison tree and therefore and <laughs> yeah right and that was kind I'm, of the premise of my question that. where it's like because does borat even make sense in 2020 like you're starting at a fundamental i mean it's issue. more like it's yeah, like yeah. kind of you know because the xenophobia of the borat character felt very real and close up in 2006 in a way that it doesn't now i mean maybe right. because designed, for so many americans to be a post 9-11 right but like yeah exactly exactly and maybe for so many americans you know that movie literally put kazakhstan on the map <laughs> but you know anyone who's familiar with borat is uh at least been uh, somewhat familiar with kazakhstan yeah, for it, 14 whole years now uh, but think i think borat, that, like as a character funny, is what americans think of kazakhstan like like the idea of the character is well. That is was always skewing the, the notion of what America. That was always the impetus behind it. But I think it's kind of bent back around now in the sharpest moments of the sequel, uh, which you know has many funny titles, and we've all sort of settled around Borat's subsequent movie film because the other ones are too long to remember. Is that <laughs> the moments where you realize that Borat is like a a barely exaggerated lampoon of Donald Trump or someone like him uh, and how like the, the like completely brittle and false gold veneer of patriotism is really all that separates one lunatic from another. And uh, Borat, but even in a broader sense, the, the misconception of the middle East's conservatism and, and the way that they behave in the mind of mongrel Americans, that is what, Borat 2006 was skewering is right. now and this one the way Borat's acting in this movie is conservative by an American definition wanting to put kids in cages and the way at, yeah. and women shall never step out of line shall not work shall not be exactly. sexual beings like Borat is an American conservative now and and yes. he is supposed to be something that that uh Republican Americans think is like beneath High society or something. Which is why the movie ends with the the running of the American, which has replaced the the running of the Jew. And I I think there's a worthy conversation to be had uh, about the Borat mythology and whether or not it has been good for the Jews. I think that like some of the Jewish stuff is, you know, as someone who thinks that that, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen is, you know, the work that he does in, especially outside of the Borat character uh, is been very impactful for the Jewish community. Um, I don't know if that's the sharpest arena of this. And I don't know if the humor, as I think we were talking about, if it got through the original film anyway, got through to the audience they needed it to. It certainly didn't seem to uh, quell any uh, embers of anti-Semitism here in the United States. Uh, so I, I don't know if that was effective, but it's still as a Jew watching it and hearing him say Yag Shalom when he walks in with a costume <laughs> that is uncannily similar to the design of the witches in Robert Zemeckis' film, which is... <laughs> Whoa, wait, no, 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 no. Oh, You're I'm thinking of the, the, the original the witches. The original witches, yes, no, the not in the Zemeckis the, version. Yes, in the Zemeckis, what I'm not calling Robert Zemeckis a Jew, anti-Semitic. Uh, it did think, and I excise a paragraph about this from my review before I filed into that movie, that it did kind of reflect Roald Dahl's noted anti-Semitism uh, because, you know, mm. down to the long black claw and, of course, the hook nose. Uh, is, they don't you know, have the, that in the new version. They do have the long black talons. Yes, they have the talons, um, but they, they And they certainly the have the long noses. Oh, sure. Her big nose no. comes out. It's all CGI and she sniffs around just because it doesn't look good. It, oh, you know, it's it like got a like great prosthesis. Original. It's not like the big nose. 
Listen, I'm the certainly Henson not, I'm not accusing Robert Zemeckis as the witches of being anti-Semitic. Yeah, I'm saying that it's so that funny how, it's so funny how Borat's Jew costume mirrors the, the imagery that's always been endemic to the witches and that may have stemmed from Roald Dahl's anti-Semitism. Uh, it's just funny that those I two movies that. were coming out on the same I'm, day. I'm going to roll this a little bit back. Um, uh, I mean, the thing I said earlier about like it's it's really like a time difference. I think it's because we live in a world not only where there's stuff like Nathan for you, which I think was the best at getting people to hoist themselves by their own petard, but um, like we're we're also living in a world where the president is basically saying things that I would have considered comedy bits like four years ago. So if we're like in this world where like these things are more obvious and somehow the cognitive dissonance of people just coming out and saying they're racist is like more commonplace. It clashed with me in Borat too, that we went back to the same framing device. Well, and I don't think he managed to elevate that beyond what it was in 2006. It's a playing the hits again. And don't we all feel sad that like nothing, things actually kind of got worse. I don't I don't think it's like necessarily uh, a well executed premise. But don't you think the ad- addition of the daughter changes that that yeah. like yes they're on a road trip again but like the the point of the story is different like it brings her on a journey of like emotional character development and him too like watching them like forge an actual bond it like it's opportunities like get into feminism i feel like the way it parodies like the fox news blonde thing with her Mm -hmm. as she turns into a tv journalist is really funny and like it's kind of under the surface unlike most of the other commentary in the movie i don't know it feels like it's got all these new lanes to explore even though like yes like the general structure of the plot is the same yeah no i think it could have been that it just also could have been that and didn't have to be borat (laughs) yeah i mean i think it didn't have to be Borat as kind of an unimpeachable argument. Like, yes, that character has problems with it. Like, he is able to do a lot that he couldn't necessarily have done without the character. So, But Borat is really a vessel at this point, right? Because it's like he needed... He shot this movie piecemeal over the course of this year. Um, didn't know, you know, how any of these segments are going to fit into a story. Uh, you know, so much of this movie is about COVID. He shot the CPAC scene back in February when COVID was already happening, but kind of in in the distance or so we were led to believe um mike, but, mike pence is so fucking smug in that oh my one god scene. i mean he's so fucking <laughs> smug on 60 minutes yesterday but you know what else I'm, is new? i mean i watched it uh yesterday like right after the news had broken that his aids had gotten covid and like i mean uh boy mike mike pence's aids mike pence's aids is no but mike pence's aids is in particular a, a string of words that makes your mind boggle <laughs> um given his history with that virus but uh there is like uh, putin borat is a vessel for for sasha baron Cohen to deliver these comic Beats, it's name recognition. It's a way of getting it out there to the widest possible audience um, and contextualizing all these disparate scenes. And the daughter is an incredible way of threading them all together. But, you know, as Sasha Baron Cohen proved with like, what was it called? This is America or not. This is this like, is a, what like, is America? What is America? Yeah. Um, like he doesn't need this pretext. He can come up with other characters that are going to elicit a very similar response that are going to be Borat adjacent. But this is just, a, you know, a, a delivery mechanism for that it's a way of weaponizing all those things together you know and and i think that 
in that light, the fact that this holds together as an actual story uh, with a heart is kind of amazing. Um, yeah. Maybe I'm going too soft on it and giving it more credit than it's due. And I do think the first as half is... As a father is, of a son. As a father okay. of a son. I do think the, the first half is definitely a lot funnier than the second. Um, and then the newsworthiness of its last little bit, which is, again, a, a sequence that, you know, it's like the ecstatic truth of it all. It's uh, Rudy Giuliani is a scum and was clearly not... Uh, there for any good reasons, and uh, but I mean he's gross before any of the exactly yeah I mean, whatever, but, gross stuff yeah. happens. Uh, but yeah. I spent most of that scene, you know, like a like a really dazzling wonder. I spent most of that scene wondering how they were shooting it and like where all of the various uh, how the timeline made sense and how they did, you know, and I was sort of taken out of the the horror of it all, which may have been a defense mechanism I mean, more than the anything moment else. When he when he comes into the room as the sound guy, though, and you like realize like that they're pulling it off and that he's in the room. Cause like, you know, that like Rudy, Gi- Rudy Giuliani called the cops after he like showed up in his underwear, but like you admire the skill of like making that all happen. But that moment felt to me like Sasha Baron Cohen saving his actress from being sexually assaulted. And, you know, it, there's a really, he seems very protective of her, even on this like press tour. He's well, understandably, but and, and... there's also like a I mean, really, she's amazing. yeah, she's incredible. I mean, she should be nominated for an Oscar. No argument here, but I think that, there, there is a really hazy moral line there where he's like using her as bait, but you know she felt safe. She felt like he was going to jump into a rescue, even at the expense of the scene, and he does. But watching it, at least for the first time, your heart is really in your throat about how, like, f- to what end are they willing to dangle this poor girl uh, for the uh, benefit I don't of the think movie? This is like Brown Bunny or someone. Yeah, and she's. I like mean, a, it's a lot more morally I mean, questionable than. If he had, like, sexually assaulted Sasha Baron Cohen, like, would you have felt the same way? Like, she is a, like, participant and a creator of this work the same way that he is. Well, I mean, for the same reason that he's been so protective of her. I mean, she is a actress with, you know, no credits to her name, one credit to her name. Yeah, she's a more vulnerable person than he is, for sure. But, like, she, uh, she puts herself in danger throughout the movie. In a, you know, in an admirable yes, like, this is but this is the one sequence. Trump, I mean, she's. A, <laughs> this is the one, and it, clearly they did metal. so many. They did they did stunts that aren't in the movie, including her uh, getting into the White House recently um, and talking to OAN's reporter. Uh, what's her face? I can never remember her name, but she's terrible. Um, Why would you remember her name? Because <laughs> uh, yeah. I've seen just like one too many of those press conferences, and I certainly see her face. Oh but uh, oh. but that scene is really it, it, it's. You know, she's in what seems to be imminent danger of something happening. And you know that it's just like he's hiding there waiting to – it's just a, it's a different calculus than any of the other scenes in the movie. I don't think it's necessarily fair to compare them. But uh, it's a squidgy movie morally all around. Uh, but I think the, the point I, that it's making is uh, is worth it. Have we spoiled the movie enough that I can spoil my favorite joke from the very Let's end of the movie? Let's call spoiler alert and then people just can jump in. when – <laughs> When he reveals that the entire thing was a plot to give the world COVID and then Tom Hanks shows up, I lost my mind. That was so yeah. – I didn't see it coming. I was genuinely surprised <laughs> by it when I – Who could have predicted? Like, so, Tom Hanks in the movie. Oh, the, just, the Tom the Hanks cameo really is Tom so Hanks, good. And just that it like revisits like all the dumb shit that's happened already and like the injection he gets, which I had forgotten about. Like I had been spoiled on the, Ru- the Rudy stuff, obviously, but I just like didn't know that was coming and it was – it delighted me so much. And I think that like of, the, yeah. the movie of it all makes for a really potent – capsule for this and it was like a real lightning rod that dominated the news cycle but you know katie listening to what you were just saying i can't help but wish and like you know talking about 
the recent stunt where they went to the White House. I can't help but wish that this was kind of a recurring series where like every three months there would be a new like adventures of Borat and Tutar where you would see them take a circus like as a reference to the Showtime show, The Circus, uh, like Dave tour. Not, ha- not having this. But I, like, I would I would I want them to. Dave wants to retire for it. But I think that, like, I would love to see them fuck up the Amy Coney Barrett super spreader event sequel that we just had tonight or whatever the case. You know, certainly on Election Day, there will be plenty of opportunities for Did they do another super spreader event for her? Yes, they did. Uh, They did outside in the White House in a horrendous and ahistorical violation of the separation of the various branches. We had the executive branch, uh, you know, partnering hand in hand on a balcony together with the judicial branch. It was a real shit show. That, that is a project Veritas on the liberal side, what you just pitched. To uh, infiltrate the Amy Coney I just wish we had monthly installments of liberals going in and fucking up the conservatives and making them look like idiots. This is a both sides are not equal <laughs> argument, Dave. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, if it were... No, 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 I, I would had... also love it. I'm just yes. saying that that's the dangerous... Just because your guys do it part you of like this. it doesn't mean... They... That's the dangerous part of this type of comedy is like, I would also love it, but when it's pulled off, well, it's like, it's the copycats. They're going to be, you know, like crazy idiots. It's the, whoever was saying (laughs) my wife unironically in in 2006, I don't know what they're going to think about this movie. But those people are in power now, so... I mean, like I you already know. have I, the biggest clowns imaginable. Who are actually Katie has never office. seen. Of course, I don't, you have. I don't feel like, like I've been. Time. I don't feel like yeah, I've been true. inconsistent because I said the same thing about the Charlie Kaufman movie, which is like really interesting execution. I think it's irresponsible to show this to a mass audience who's going to take it at fucking face value. Irresponsible. Irresponsible. Let me just say this: it's not irresponsible that this so, movie has very funny jokes, like a fart scene. Yes. He, Borat farts at the. Uh, <laughs> At the plastic surgery office, and that's very funny. And the mm-hmm. best scene, clearly, I like as you pulled out the, the half a second fart. Oh, the fart! Yeah. It was just I'm still getting up on Dave's argument that people so are too beautiful. stupid for like to be trusted with good movies. Which there is definitely like a kernel of truth to that. But I, I guess where I differ with Dave is it feeling like it should stop us from releasing those movies. No, I, I, I'm not. I can't stop Amazon from releasing this movie. I can't stop them from making money off Borat. If I had my name on it, I'd be singing the capitalist tune. I'm just saying that these like people are talented. Absolutely, they're good comedy writers because they're setting up and executing very difficult premises. I'm just wondering, couldn't it be a more productive premise? But Dave, he goes yeah. to a FedEx office and, and faxes someone suck. Oh my God. So yeah, yeah. Oh my God. That sequence is great because it's just him and the fax <laughs> Come dude. on. That's I hilarious. Mean, so of, like, of all the real people in this movie who come off well, the guy who just sends the increasingly stupid faxes <laughs> back and forth Draw and like completely no face. Just- uh, <laughs> right. Chilling. 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 <laughs> the scene where he takes the... So much. He takes the the phone, I guess it is, we're showing the porn into the bathroom. <laughs> like, this is like really That's puerile. That's a great callback too. Lately. Targeting the 13-year-old stuff. <laughs> oh, oh, it's a great yeah, callback. The, call, the callback when that guy is on the phone later. Uh, yeah, I as, as someone who doesn't like to be tricked and then just like is polite in all situations. As I tweeted, I can easily imagine myself being a mark for Borat. So the moments when it lets people be like dumb but nice and helpful and like not doing terrible racist things i I liked that because i feel like many people would do that some people would reveal themselves be horrible and racist and some people would just send a a fax that says chill into kazakhstan and not ask any questions or what what is the what is the joke at the dress shop 
where the woman's just oh the no means yes section yeah what are, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's just like okay just, <laughs> i mean you know in god I, we should end this but as someone who worked in retail for too long uh there, there is yeah here we go no i Stumble mean into the other thing i don't like about uh surprising people who are getting paid for a living yeah, yeah, I mean, you and I, you and I are probably going to agree on this point. Where it's like, you know, would I ever make a cake that says Jews would not replace it on it? Absolutely not. There are definitely limits to this. Um, but you know, when I worked at the Apple Store, people would come in, all sorts of people in New York City with all sorts of requests, some of which had absolutely nothing to do with buying a computer or an iPhone, and you don't necessarily assent to all of them, uh, but you are being paid, particularly at a brand like Apple, to uh, manage them. Um, and if some, you know, I wasn't on camera uh, being filmed by Sasha Baron Cohen and hadn't signed a, a release form, but, um, you know, if, if someone came in, you're not going to, and said something like horribly offensive, you don't boot them out of the store. You have yeah. to find a more diplomatic way of dealing about it or you lose your job. And that is a real tension because, you know, I, I fortunately, you know, no one came in and was like, hey, Before can you write this? Destroying like, can you write Mein Kampf to someone? But like, if there was a Borat you know, three, spending money at their store, he spends if, a thousand if, some dollars if, getting construction if, equipment. If there was a Borat three, that's the Borat three that I'll watch. Is he goes in, oh, he tries it a third time, and they just fucking kick him out of the store right at the beginning. Like that. Wow. There we go. Very fun movie. That'll. Oh, no, it's not a fun movie, but it's growth. It's comedy fucking growth. Which poor wow. at two is it? It's the Austin Powers two of this same type of humor. I just. Anyway, never mind. Gold. I, uh, we I, should do an Austin Powers series. We should. Yeah, like they, they are. But I, I, I will. Are, just as a closing, none of these note, things are bad I, movies. I, I shouldn't. I, I just. I worry about. I worry about the people that got too high and watched Borat, Borat Cultural Leanings of America for Make Benefit of Glorious <laughs> Kazakhstan, just getting high and watching the second one and not getting it. Yeah, I mean, you know that, like, Donald Trump Jr. thought Borat was hilarious, but, like, the original anyway. But I, I do think, uh, just to close the loop here, that um, if if we are saying that Borat engineers or... or um, induces empathy for some of the people who may not come off in the best of light in this movie. I think that may it actually serve the movie's purpose and its message. However, inadvertently or not, I mean, I think that finding empathy for these people, I, feel, I mean, some of them are obviously the butt of the joke. I don't think um, the, and cross the, the line, heads but, that he lives with in that cabin are bad people. That but that sequence, a, like, yeah, I mean, they're reachable, but that segment also doesn't they're work. Brainwashed. There's a lot of brainwashed people me. in this movie. Yeah. Anyway, there's a lot going on in Borat, too. Bang. That does it for this week's episode. Uh, we'll be back next week with a pre-election episode that will come out after the election. That's going to be interesting. <laughs> uh, I mean, you keep Wait, saying that like we're going like to do election? it. Should we spoil the election right now? We got screeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Tom Hanks shows up, right? Yeah, <laughs> right at the end. Right at the cameo. end. 
Wouldn't it be such a relief if somehow at the end of this election season Tom Hanks showed up? Um, should we say also we're gonna have a quarter fall in a couple weeks? Um, I don't know if we want to. We'll figure out some ways to maybe tease it ahead of time, but that's kind of. We might figure out the movies far enough in advance that people could watch. Yeah, that was kind of kind of my goal. But you know, we all have a lot of goals in this pre-election period. We'll see who. Keep your eye on the prize. Future. Will, will you guys agree on the air that if? Uh, if the election doesn't go well, we will have an emergency call-in episode just for uh, what do you mean, if solidarity sake. No, no, no. What sort of world where is it like, if the election goes bad, I want to triple my work that week. Like, no. Well, that's we'll have a call-in episode when we can organize a call-in episode. I, I, didn't mean like, I didn't mean like that week. I just meant at some point in the nearish Maybe we'll oh, We're feeling the worst. Zoom. Let's do something where we have to yes. do a lot more I, work. That, the call-in episode where we, we disappoint like, a ton more people. Yeah, maybe people could get mad. <laughs> I don't know. I found if- I found uh, speaking to the people who have been listening to the show all these years to be really revitalizing uh, at a time that was already pretty fucking bleak. Right, well, um, which is not to say that well, David will organize himself mm-hmm. and edit. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can just set up a Zoom and let people come. They'll talk let to everyone you. know That's on always Twitter. Always an option. And it's not the same. Right, you guys, uh, you guys the, suck. The, Let's end does, this episode. Does David have a podcast? Office hours will be. <laughs> David, I like the live episode too. We'll do it again. We will. We will do it again. Okay. Tell people who you are. Why don't you? I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website, fightingintheworm.com, where I think people should really be leaving their reviews these days. We need to divorce ourselves from Apple. I'm going to I'm gonna urge people to pivot to fightingintheworm.com. Uh, is that part that? of your master plan to make sure that nobody ever finds the show? It's great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, um, uh, we're also on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room, uh, where if you leave us a review, it will actually help our show continue to uh, bring us in boatloads of money. I don't know anymore. We are one of the most popular podcasts all time. <laughs> We used to be the at the top of the mountain, and now we are simply one of. So I would love to to climb back up, um, especially if Billions continues to be on hiatus. Fucking Billions! Uh, <laughs> um, the in the next generation, the next generation of Billions will just be like millions, and then thousands as the wealth <laughs> grows. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich, and on IndieWire. As I said, all of us on iTunes, fighting in the war room. I'm gonna go have some emergency Talenti pumpkin pie ice cream while I watch. Someone tweeted at us about, I feel like we've gotten more tweets about Talenti ice cream. Yeah, someone tweeted us about the the southern butter pecan flavor. And listen, I'm very happy for them that they found something that they truly love. Uh, I've tried that flavor. It does not ring my bell in quite the same way as the pumpkin pie. Nothing does. But uh, I am happy to spread the Talenti gospel. One of the only ice creams that you could spread like gospel or anything. It's that smooth. Uh, Talenti. Find it in the egg aisle. We need to we need to get Talenti and Pluto TV to be giving us money real fast. And Tubi, as we figured and out. Tubi. Uh, Not a is penis Tubi, channel. Is that Jeffrey Tubin's streaming network? <laughs> it isn't yet. But uh, I want to see what's so on that. Uh, my name is Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E, but don't. It's pre-election. Twitter is a fire. Don't, don't be on there. Uh, you can also go with me back to the island uh, to rewatch Lost. I do a podcast called the Storm of Lost Rewatch Podcast. We are in season four. Next week is the constant. It's a great time to uh, get away from the world and go to an island of mystery. The Storm Lost Rewatch Podcast. 
Oh, it's me. Really? It's you. It, it's me. Um, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com and on the Little Goldman podcast there, uh, where this week we're also talking about Borat. Uh, and next week we're doing our 2000 Oscar flashback. So if you want to listen to something election week that isn't whatever we're going to record next week, whoever's stressed out, that's where you can find it. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Katie Rich. It's if you can't get off Twitter and you don't have the strength to do it, join me there. Uh, and you can uh, follow us all on Twitter at FITWR, where you could answer the lightning round question for no reason whatsoever, just because you want to. What was it? In honor of the last pre-election weekend that's also Halloween, what is your favorite movie monster? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'll tell you when I'm done. Bang. Who in here trying to start it? Who in here trying to start it? My fair lady. I'm done.